Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My name is Abhishek and my guest today is Gavin Jackson, the author of Money in One Lesson, a fascinating book which, quote, keeps things simple without being simplistic, according to the Mint newspaper. I couldn't agree more. From beer tabs to Parmesan cheese, from rupees origin to how central banks work, with references to prisons, the Beatles, and the hit shows like Mad Men, the book charts different facets of money in a very user-friendly manner. Thanks a lot, Gavin, for joining in. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, you are up against a whole body of work. And this is a question that would have come to you from publishers to prospective readers. You've got David uh, Graeber's Debt, The First 5,000 Years, or your colleague, Philip Coggan, currently at The Economist, who's written Paper Promises, among other books. And I think there are quite a few. What did you set out to achieve in this book? Um, I think my my goal was to write a, a sort of introduction to money that sort of talked to you rather than talk down to you. That was kind of my goal. So, if, you know, it was it was a guide to help you through it rather than sort of, I found a lot yeah. of the books a little bit patronizing. And that was kind of what I was trying to avoid is kind of like, you know, you're a smart person. Here's a guide that is entertaining and interesting as well as uh, educational. Right. It does uh, have a bunch of trivia in it, which I did not know. And we'll get to some of the India connections that uh, you, you bring in. I think India itself comes about seven to ten times in the book. But let's let's start with a very basic tenet is that money relies on trust in that, you know, if there is a piece of paper, which I believe will buy me a loaf of bread or a car, I believe that that's a reasonable amount of money to get me that in a country like India, Venezuela, Russia, wherever it is. But you, you start off by referring to how Currency is just a medium. It may well have been toilet paper, as it turned out in Ireland in 1970, when uh, bank employees, I think, went on strike is what you write. And uh, that didn't mean that the economy came to a grinding halt. People found ways around it and they would write stuff on chits of paper uh, saying that, hey, this is whatever that currency is of 10 units or 100 units and hope that when the banks open, they will settle their debts. How did that work out? I mean, that, that story itself is a little crazy to get my yeah, head so, so in India, I think in 1970, all the bank employees went on strike because obviously no one could get hold of cash. Bit of a problem. You need cash for, it's the basic lifeblood of an economy. So what they did was they just found a bit of paper, wrote down, here's what I owe you. And then they could trade that paper perfectly easily between one another. I think there's actually, again, the India connection. This is the ch- chit slips, chitties, and a big popular India Indian thing, I think about 100 years ago. I don't know if they're mm-hmm. still allowed. Mm-hmm. Chit funds. Yeah, yeah. yeah, chit funds, yeah. Um, the exact same thing. Exact same thing. It doesn't matter whether it's, uh, that's why let's say cryptocurrency, if you have the time, we'll talk about it. But uh, there is a lot of debate whether it is indeed a trustworthy medium. So if the whole of the world decides that, yes, that new form of currency is trustworthy, and that will pass off as currency, just as any other denomination yeah. then. Yes, so, so long as you trust it, which I yeah. think I, I sort of explain in, in, in the book that that's not always guaranteed. There's been lots of occasions where people have said something as money, and it's been very good reasons not to believe them. But the the reason it worked in Ireland in, in the seventies was because people trusted one another. It was a it was, you know, a country with a quite a small country at the time, lots of personal connections. People knew their neighbours, so they could all rely on one another to um, to take part in this. There was also in India, I remember, Gavin, in the early 90s, I was in in school at the time. And I don't know the reason for this. I tried finding out by talking to my mom, if she remembers that time where the shopkeepers here, the Kirana stores or the small mom and pop stores, Mm -hmm. they didn't have enough change to, you know, hand over. So they would just write 
down the amount on a small cardboard sized papers wrapped in cellophane and that would pass off as currency and we in this locality of whatever 5000 people that we live here would use that to yeah. buy so we would use the same little cardboard to go to another kirana and get some stuff now i don't even know if it was done only in mumbai or the place where i live but it all comes down to the same thing then it's 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 trust yeah i think so i mean i expect it probably wasn't happening in mumbai because it's a bit harder when it's you know several million people to maintain that kind of trust um which i think we talk about in the book as well that you know when people started living in cities that's when we really had to get this you know coins and things that we didn't have to trust one another and know who the person we're dealing with is then you can go i just know that coin's worth what it is but you know 5000 people yeah that i think you can you can maintain trust in that kind of that kind of society and you also write about in in prisons for instance i think it was uh, was it cigarettes that was treated as currency and well the cigarettes example comes from a prisoner of war camp so it was this british british economist who was put in a prisoner of war camp in germany during the second world war and he writes all about how cigarettes became the unit of money the problem in prisons they had was back in the early 2000s they banned smoking in us prisons so they had to find something else they used and what they they seized on was little tins of mackerel so tinned fish that was the way they they solved this problem because you know it being tinned you could sort of had a guarantee that it was fresh right um and the thing about mackerel which i found amusing was that no one actually wanted to eat it the only people who wanted wanted it were the bodybuilders who needed it for protein <laughs> so for everyone else they were quite happily to get rid of it in exchange for something that actually did want and and this also goes if if we go back to history and you cover that history of money uh, itself and it's hard to prove a claim that back in the day it was about barter that's what they taught us in school that the farmers and the hunters would gather around and a hunter would you know barter some of his goods for that of the other but then if if i have sheep then i have to wait for somebody wanting to have sheep uh, so that coincidence of wants which was debunked apparently i think the, the part that gift economy that you talk about that a person would gift what they have hoping that the other person would give something back in return how big was that and is is that the debt of gratitude basically is is that the debt that is also in today's uh, day and age uh, does that still hold true those economies the the gift economies sort of pure gift economies that in history were quite small that you know small villages small groups of people that kind of thing they never got very sizable because again it's kind of you have to know everyone but i do think that our gift economies happening all the time parallel to the monetary economy you know in in that um people do reach the favor they think someone else owes them a favor they trade that kind of thing but i have the example in my book of when you go on a date and you buy who who pays for the meal at the end it's a gift but it's also a transaction and there's kind of the whole thing of figuring out who's paying and what they're paying for is kind of shows that kind of gift economy but the thing about the gift economy is that it's all embedded in other social expectations and social obligations to one another whereas a monetary economy you can just here's a money that's it I don't have to deal with you anymore with a gift economy you have to always be dealing with one another all the time whether money now represents gifts i think it's to a degree it does in the what we do is we we have jobs we work for other people for society and then society gives a bit of paper and saying well this is what we owe you for the work you've done it's kind of a representation of this kind of exchange of work and time with one another 
and you also write that uh, those who don't repay might lose face or reputation and that's why back in the day they may not get enough goods if they are not repaying the favor which is also similar to when a friend goes out for a smoke with you and if he's not paying each time when you know and we yeah. we get loose cigarettes here you may not want to go with that person again so it was also social was it back in the day like it had a very social bond to it all uh, when currency was not yet there or all they social all very much about i see you every day i know who you are i know what you're like mm. and therefore i know what i can give you and what i will get back in in turn does that also explain the kind of unusual uh, methods like hawala that you write about and it is pretty big in india i think we grew up by the way back in the 1990s times of india would carry uh, these articles about the hawala scandal millions of dollars of cash were laundered from india but then it it need not always be bad it's it's just a trust system which we don't i i mean i can't get my head around it it's too 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 complicated but in simplistic words can you explain how that works yeah i i absolutely love hawala i think it's i think it's an amazing innovation um i think it's the world's oldest bank so it's i mean it's basically just to transfer money between two people you don't need to actually move money you just need two people who trust each other at the middle to say that you pay them you know go to the hawala dealer hawala dealer gives someone some money and that's that's money transferred and the other one says i'll give this a valid dealer money and then as so long as the two people in the middle trust each other can happen instantly and that's the basis for if we're honest most of the monetary system that's how banks work banks they don't actually move money between one another they just have debts all the banks are in this interlinked network of debts to one another just like all the hawala brokers are in this interlinked network of debts to one another it's all quantified everyone knows and keeps records of who owes each other what so it's all meticulous record keeping and, and as long as everyone knows who owes what then they can work it all out behind the scenes without having to bother the customers and they can settle up their debts at the end of the month even if they're transferring loads of things every single day they only need to do one transaction at the end of the month to settle the debts within within this within the network and you also write that if one of the hawala members goes rogue then he will never get back in business again or he makes a mistake because it's all based on trust again and you're right so it doesn't move it means it doesn't cross borders right meaning if uh, let's say from the sinister perspective if india had to smuggle money or brokers hawala brokers had to smuggle money to let's say into switzerland so a swiss hawala broker could transfer his personal dough to uh, a desired bank account in in that country and his counterpart in india uh, would then return the favor perhaps uh, uh, on a later exactly. date so so they yeah. they're keeping track of of all of these things then Yeah and this was something uh, the US got very um scared of Havala back in uh sort of the early 2000s after the 9/11 attacks and it sort of saw this as this insidious method for moving um money across borders but actually it was just all done in the in so the the, the 9/11 attacks were funded through the traditional banking system and Havala was fine but it wasn't Havala's fault and it's this um, amazing way of it's this ingenuity of not having options of people coming up with ideas when the like with the Irish banking strike you know that people want to trade with one another and they'll come up with a way of doing it so long so long as they trust one another <laughs> talking about trust and i don't think it, this has much to do with money but do you know that in gujarat which is the hub or surat hub for diamonds in india there are mm. kids as old as you know 15 or 21 who are given custody of diamonds and they have to tra- travel in a train to get it to the other side maybe in mumbai where we have the uh, consumers they don't know who they have to give the money to but the other guy will have a bank note and he will know the code or he will know 
the fourth digit of the bank note is four. And if this guy knows, then he will make that trade. So it's all again on 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 trust. Yeah, exactly. With, yeah. with passwords um, yes. and that kind of thing. To it's a, it, I mean yeah, that's kind of almost like cryptocurrency. Work, how that works, <laughs> you know, with with someone having a um, a, a bit of a private key, and then they can check the other person's key, and then if they confirm them, exactly, the is over. Yes. So it's, it's just, you know, it's like we think of Bitcoin and all these things as this enormous new technology that's really hard to understand. But it's almost just like these these basic cryptographic techniques, these wet ways of verifying trust we've had for centuries that have just been brought into the, the digital world. Then do you think that modern day entrepreneurs are only, uh, you know, getting inspired uh, by uh, such methods? For it, it reminds me of a peer-to-peer -peer lending outfit, TransferWise, which I, I think I was among the first ones. Now they've renamed themselves to Wise, where Havalo brokers are replaced by migrant workers who have got mortgages to pay back home so they will so if an indian wants to transfer money to india they'll do the same thing what the hawala brokers do but at a fraction of a cost that the banks charge you so that's where yeah. they are you know i think i think uh, wise actually has on their website a description of hawala oh they do they have, yeah they explicitly took inspiration from it um which just goes to show yeah. that one way way of getting great ideas is to look back into the past there's always right. so much more there than you think there is. <laughs> and, and now jumping straight to the future, so much so that, you know, talking about what has happened in the last couple of weeks with the Silicon Valley uh, Bank, mm -hmm. which went bust. So how do you explain that? So would it be right to say that banks, you write in the book, do not always have enough money to pay all their depositors. And in this case, for whatever reasons, all depositors came there at once to withdraw the money and then there was a run or what what exactly happened and how do, how do these things happen? How do these very intelligent folks get it wrong? Banking is a kind of confidence trick in that you borrow from lots of people, small amounts from lots of people all at once, and then you invest that money in various assets. And so long as not all of those people come knocking at the same time to ask for their money back, it works. But if your investments are going bad, then those people are going to take notice of that and go, well, we want our money back. And that was kind of what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. They put all their money in um U.S. government treasuries, U.S. government debt, and the Federal Reserve has been increasing interest rates, which just mechanically lowers the value of their debt, even though the U.S. is going to pay it back eventually. No one thinks that the U.S. government is going to go bankrupt um, and not pay the debt bonds back. But it meant that if the market value of those bonds fell, they couldn't sell them for the price that was their face value. The depositors all noticed that. And unfortunately, for Silicon Valley Bank, all the depositors knew each other. They were all VCs. They were all in the same WhatsApp group. <laughs> and someone put a message in the group and said, hang on, something's going off at Silicon Valley Bank. All come asking for their money at once. Can't sell its assets to pay them back. Which is central banks are meant to, you know, central banks, which I talk about a lot in the book, these institutions that can create money. If a bank is solvent, it's not, its assets are worth more than its debts. It can lend to them. But they didn't judge that Silicon Valley was solvent. So Silicon Valley Bank was solvent. What, what really brought the, the thing down was that its assets, its investments had gone bad. Its investments weren't worth much as fundamentally. It was that was the problem with Silicon Valley Bank. It was it was Michael Moritz who said that he reckoned it was like death of a family member because it was considered to be a bank which helped the Silicon Valley folks for a while. And it was uh, one of those. And also money generally, when we read stories like these, uh, money historically has also uh, received some bad rep. You think like you you write yourself about how in Dante's Inferno, which I haven't read, but it's about sodomites, if I'm pronouncing it right, and moneylenders occupy the same 
circle of hell to quote from your book why is that yeah. <laughs> so that's that goes all the way back to aristotle who basically yeah. said you know um money isn't natural money shouldn't breed but money lenders they get some money and they make more money just by having money they're making something that shouldn't breed breed that was why money lending according to aristotle was evil in uh, 17th century or whenever it was 16th century i don't know when dante wrote the he goes well what's like that what is something that people are well having sex without breeding that's that's also unnatural so these two people are in the same circle of hell because they're they're sinning against nature you see that was that was the kind of philosophy what would they have to say about uh, uh, us banking uh, which operated at some point in the 21st century or 20th was it 363 model what would this talk say about that it was amusing to read that and just for the listeners apparently yeah. 363 model is bank managers should borrow at 3% lend at 6% and make it to the golf course by 3 p.m. yeah <laughs> <laughs> just the same great image of just these these guys collecting money without doing a lot of work yeah and that's the kind of thing that Aristotle was objecting to that that these people were creating creating wealth without doing any work for it which is what's natural um and is kind of gone down in history as this kind of mistrust of um money lenders and and one person uh, who has tried to bring in some sanity or explain how it all works uh, in a way that uh, people could understand was john maynard keynes father of macroeconomics and he's got some india connection explain that he started this he's, well he, he worked for the british government he started his career um in the indian office of the civil service Uh, where he was tasked with sorting out india's currency problems at the kind of turn of the the 20th century so he had this indication though he never visited india apparently it's classic uh, you know days of the british empire sort of someone in an office in london thinking they can run a country for <laughs> never been to but yeah he was tasked with this job because india had a silver currency uh, the rupee uh, which in sanskrit means silver um rupee was always always made of silver um He was like this was a problem for India because everyone else was on gold and the price of silver was falling relative to gold so India had to pay more and more and more for its foreign for its imports for everything in its foreign transactions and uh, there was a big push to sort of get India onto uh, some kind of gold standard or something like that and Keynes was a big critic of this and he said look it's not India's problem that it's on silver silver was working fine for India domestically its problem is you know is gold. So what it should do is well his argument was that it should India should keep silver for domestic purposes but peg it at a fixed rate to gold and then just can be concerned about two different things whatever's going on domestically you can use silver and then internationally it can use gold. He had this great phrase rupee is a note printed on silver is what he said and it he thought that was very wasteful they should print on paper instead but it worked fine you know it's kind of like modern day paper money which is made out of silver. but one of my favorite quotes of his is in the long term we are all dead another thing the the general theory of uh, employment interest and money i didn't know that the general was reference to einstein's general theory of relativity so he wasn't a modest man as such no exactly yeah he sort of uh, you know in the way that einstein um overturned newtonian physics he seemed to think he could turn up overturn all previous economics in the same way so he was making this grand claim at the start of the the book which he kind of he kind of did you know it's the father of macroeconomics so i think we can let him have a little bit of arrogance <laughs> <laughs> right and also he how big a contribution was this to economics at the time is that ultimately spending 
provides the funds that are necessary for saving, as you write, rather than the other way around. So he encouraged people to spend more rather than save. One person's spending is another person's income, but it's the paradox of thrift that they taught us in, in college as well, where it's good to save, but if everyone starts saving, then uh, the economy won't grow. Is that something that he he was the first to put forth or, or some such? You can get into big, big, long debates about who was the first and who influenced right. who you know, in the way that all, right. all academics and sort of intellectual history is. But that was his big, big point that he was making back in the 1930s. So, you know, in the US was in this Great Depression, mm. this kind of really deep economic crisis that didn't seem to have any end. And he was pointing out that, you know, every the encouragement to save great for an individual. We all need to save for when we're older. We all need to save for uh, if something bad happens to us. But if everyone tries to do that once, they're not going to manage to save because everyone is saving. They're not spending. You know, I'm going to um, stay in tonight and not go out to the to the bar. That then means the waiter's not getting paid. So then he can't save. And if he can't get any money, then he's not going to spend on what you're doing. And then you can't save. So the attempt to save is self-defeating. It doesn't get there in the end, was his point. And so his encouragement was that instead of trying to sort of keep, you have to let money be flexible to solve this problem. If the government made money cheap enough, then people wouldn't want to save and they'd go out and spend instead. So it was kind of this this theory, he has money at the centre of this theory that is it's his view about how money works that lets this paradox resolve itself. Um, and that was his sort of big encouragement. And it doesn't matter whether he was the first one or not, because economics or the concept of money has been evolving all the time. Would that be right? And so, I mean, your book, had you written it in 50 years ago or 20 years down the line, might have other observations. Because one thing I found fascinating is uh, Irvine Fisher is whom you write about. He took over from Keynes and then introduced a link between was it unemployment and inflation? Then Milton Friedman came in. He had his views and Paul Walker uh, had his own thing going. Uh, so these are all premier minds of their times. They all disagree with each other. And yet it moves forward, the whole debate. And uh, how do you look at it? How does this work? Yeah, I think that's, that's I tend to think of it as sort of a, a journey, I guess, is that these are different steps we've taken. Um, they've helped us understand what was going on at their time, and we can apply many of their insights to what's going on now. But it's not the last part of it. It's going to continue. There'll be more people, there'll be more insights, and none of it is is always true all the time. It's kind of, it's always adapted to its circumstances, and then circumstances change. It's not true anymore. And that, but it does help us understand what's changed and why and, and make a sense of the new reality. I think even if I'd written this a couple of years later, because I wrote this sort of mostly during the pandemic, I think if I'd written it a couple of years later now when we've got these really high inflation rates, I think I'd said some, my focus would have been a bit different, I think, as well. Right. Yeah. And it was once in a century, even just like I think the Great Depression is you covered yeah, exactly. a little bit about it. And then you had the 2008 financial crisis. Now, two, two questions. How did, how did these folks miss it? And also you write that we learned a lot from the Great Depression. The 2008 could have been far worse. But how did we not see that coming, you think? Yeah, so I think I think one of the big mistakes was to sort of forget about money, as I put it, is that they kind of thought that money didn't matter. Imagine there was no money and it's just people dealing in as, as if it's barter, as if people are swapping, you know, a podcast for a book, you know, that kind of thing, um, as if that transaction happened directly. And so we can just imagine the world in those terms and we can forget about banks. Banks just, they sort of e ease the flow. They don't change its direction or anything like that. And so that was kind of the intellectual 
accepted opinion. There's the accepted opinion among economists, and they didn't question it. And then they had a, you know, what you don't know does hurt you. It's the things that you think that you've solved where the problems are, is what they found out. So there will always be a problem that will keep confounding the best of minds when it comes to money then. I, I think, I mean, I, I think there probably will be because fundamentally yeah. the big drivers are fear and greed and fear and greed are very human. Yeah. People are always going to be afraid. They're always going to want more. Right. Um, but hopefully, and I think I did say, you know, with the 2008 financial crisis, it could have been a lot worse because we mm-hmm. did learn something. We did learn a little bit about how to um, stop it turning into the Great Depression and that kind of thing. So we do learn from our mistakes, but then we make new ones. And and among the couple of big learnings would have been that it was okay to to bail the banks out in quick time rather than wait for them to remedy themselves by the you know by their with their own accord. I mean, I think that's my view. A lot of people will. I mean, this is controversial. A lot of people will say that oh, by bailing them out, they never really learned their lesson, and so kind of what we're seeing now is is a similar thing. But kind of, I think that it did stop the rot and it helped things get back to normal very quickly, at least financially back to normal. We didn't have the waves and waves of bank failures that they had in the 1930s. So what they did was they bailed them out and then they tightened up the regulation. Much harder for them to take the same risks they did before. And Silicon Valley Bank actually got opt out from lots of those regulations because oh. it was because they were intended to be for the biggest banks. And Silicon Valley Bank lo- actually lobbied. To get to get excluded from those as being a smaller bank, and therefore it didn't have these same controls that now we impose on the banks. So I think, I mean, my view is generally bank failures are always going to happen. It's almost better to be faster at cleaning up the aftermath than to sort of let them live in their mess <laughs> as a punishment, you know. Um, so that's kind of my view: is that we're not never going to stop these things. Let's try and minimize the harm from them. But this is a controversial area and there's thousands of things. So don't take my word as gospel. <laughs> right. But at the same time, there would be some, there would be a checklist where, you know, these are the seven things or 1,752 things that you need to do to get a few things right. Where would you say inflation targeting sits on that list? In India, it was Raghuram Rajan who introduced it as the governor of the Reserve Bank of India in 2016, where we say that between four to six percent is what the band is, medium to long term. If if it goes beyond that, then, you know, whether it, they'll either loosen or tighten the monetary policy so where do you see that and how important is it i think i think it's generally worked quite well inflation targeting i think it's done a lot better than what we'd had before so one of them was monetarism which was targeting the amount of money in the economy i think that was a bit of a disaster if i'm honest um and then we've also had fixed exchange rates which you had these periodic crises where the exchange rate would come under attack you'd have to devalue then cost a lot to defend it in terms of the reserves and that worked really work and I think that over the last, I mean, Britain had a monetary, sort of had inflation targeting since about 1997, 98. And I think it's been a bit better than it was in the past. We haven't had the, you know, we had um, a big attack on the pound in 92, Black Wednesday it was called. That was a disaster. We had lots of um, all kinds of exchange rate crises when we tried to fix the level of the exchange rate instead of the level of inflation. So I think, it's, you know, nothing is perfect. But it is this kind of incremental getting better and learning from our mistakes. On the other side of it, where uh, you also write about this in your book, where you can punish economies that don't toe the line by you know, slapping sanctions on them. It happened recently when Russia invaded Ukraine. It happened in the 70s. You write about how was it? Was it Iran at the time? Yeah, Iran. 
Yeah. So how much do these sanctions work? Because we keep reading them. There are again conflicting views on it. It's just a a small measure or a token measure, or indeed it can have a big uh, impact. I think that they can have a very big impact um, in, on an economy. So I think about Iran today, its uh, nuclear weapons program has got it placed under US sanctions. I think they're having a very big economic effect. And it can be quite devastating to an economy that it gets put on them. I don't think they actually make countries change their behavior very much, though. Like Iran is still developing nuclear weapons, despite the fact it's under all these sanctions. Russia is still at war in Ukraine, despite the fact it's under all these sanctions, because, you know, countries have their desires and they're often very willing to, to be punished, you know, or to survive the punishment in exchange for them. So the U.S. has this powerful weapon. But that doesn't mean it's all powerful. It doesn't get because it comes down to the role of the dollar. Just the dollar is the most important currency in the world, so that's why the US can do this. But it doesn't mean that everyone does what the US wants. And and also there are people on Twitter. I think Coca Cola is no more allowed to be sold in Russia. Mm-hmm. Is what I understand. I may be wrong, but I saw somebody stocking five different Coca Colas being imported from Poland and here and there. So there would be ways to get around it, or maybe it's the consumers who get. Uh, uh, impacted? Would that be correct? In addition to some of the guys against whom I think even there are some politicians whose assets are frozen as a temporary measure. But uh, yeah. consumers get impacted more than the politicians in that case. Then, um, often that's happened. So I think that's I think that was very controversial when Iraq was under sanctions in the early nineties. That um, you know Saddam Hussein was was doing fine, but actually a lot of Iraqi people were going hungry because they couldn't get food. So it's kind of a very blunt, very blunt tool sanctions. People do have ways of getting around it. So back to the Havala we were talking about at the start. Uh, sanctions have been great for Iranian Havala dealers because they, they're one of the few who can get money out of the country. So there are ingenuity and ingenuity and trust and you can do a lot um, with money. Right. And, and last, I know you've got to run as well. So last last couple of them is, is that at the same time, there are genuine concerns where countries go down like it's happening, it happened in Sri Lanka and Pakistan mm-hmm. is in tatters right now where they have to go to the IMF for help. Now, the IMF says we will loan you money if you can show me that you can save enough, meaning you have to make sure you have austerity measures and the like. Uh, you cover a little bit of it in, in, in one chapter where you talk about it can be counterproductive if the country stops its spending, then it will slow down the economic recovery. So what's that balance? Does the IMF demand more than it should? Should there be a little bit of leeway or is it too difficult oh. to question as such to, you know? That's a, that's a, that's a very difficult question. I think yeah. it would probably depend case by case. I think some people internally at the IMF have said that occasionally they've been too strict on the level of what they've demanded, but they would, you know, point out that ultimately they need to get the money back that they give. They are not a charity. They are funded by governments and those governments have limited funds and if they can't get it back then that's a problem for the IMF um, but it's just a very very tricky situation I wouldn't have a blanket judgment on whether the IMF always gets it right or wrong but I just think it's important to remember it's, it's a very difficult question generally hmm. but then having said that when it comes to bankruptcies say here's an example of a country going bust but then when when companies go bust they are indeed rescued and it, it's not as bad a thing as it was once upon a time you write about how donald trump i think it was it six times he was rescued his companies and he went on to become the president among others so is that not such a bad thing then i think i think it's kind of trying not to be too judgmental about it it's that people make mistakes everyone makes mistakes and 
once upon a time, going bankrupt, not repaying your debt was seen as a huge source of shame that you would be imprisoned or whatever, or that you were a thief for not repaying these people. And I think that attitude has been found to be generally counterproductive, is that if you have that kind of society, then people won't take risks. They won't try. On the other hand, some people are thieves. Some people will ask for money and not ever want to pay it back. Generally, I I lean towards trying to just be understanding that, you know, people get into trouble with debt. That's a thing that happens. And it's much, much better for society to have ways of getting them out of trouble than punishing them. And I think that's probably true internationally as well. It's better to see Pakistan and Sri Lanka as people we can help rather than people we need to punish, hmm. you know. In fact, in, in the 19th century, and this is something my father-in-law told me, a little bit of trivia. He says that when a Hindu merchant, he, he would announce his insolvency by burning uh, one uh, dia, or it's a lamp with uh, butter, clarified butter, that is ghee. Uh, mm. it was that, And he would never return back to his family. He would just leave the home and uh, his friends in the village would mourn that this happened and the creditors would come home and confiscate everything because that was his... That, that, that was how people would declare insolvency. It was uh, filled, I mean, it was shameful at the time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And but just think how awful that would be for the family left behind. Yeah, exactly. So then there is no chance of coming back. Forget about taking risks. Uh, here you don't get a second chance uh, at all. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You said your book came out or you wrote bulk of it during the pandemic. What were some of the exceptions that you saw during and after the pandemic, which today either leaves you scratching your head or says, ah, the fundamental of money uh, still is deep-rooted? Yeah, I think the inflation that we've seen, this really high inflation we've seen after the pandemic, has really been a reminder of some of the very fundamentals. After the 2008 financial crisis, loads of money printing, loads of quantitative easing to try and stimulate the economy, no sign of inflation at all. And people say, well, that's done, that's never coming back now. We're just, inflation's dead. But what we've seen, pandemic, loads of money printing, inflation's come rolling back. So it's a reminder that some of the some of the dynamics do not change. That's been that's been really yeah, interesting to see. And and I also read uh, you you talk about Angela Merkel, if I'm pronouncing the name correct, uh, Germany's former chancellor. Uh, she says that not in her lifetime will EU countries uh, get together to borrow money, and that's exactly what happened during the pandemic was it where some 27 yeah, exactly. members of the eu joined yeah. forces. so that was one that was unheard of is it for the eu it was it was unheard of that these countries would all agree to share share their debts with one another that they would trust each other enough to yeah. to uh, underwrite each other's debt and then 2020 they'd all do it happens very yeah. quickly and they all just easily get over their, their opposition well not easily they all managed to get over their opposition and come out uh, and do this gesture of solidarity together. So yeah, th- yeah, things change and some things stay the same. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Gavin, for your time on the podcast and many, many congratulations on this book yet again. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I think, and, and also the part about South Korea was brilliant uh, in that, okay. you know, how, uh, I think, it was, was it then a masterstroke that South Korea saw, uh, you know, the Beatles making money for the UK, which I, let me just read out from your book, says that the dollar earnings in the 1960s of the Beatles, among others, helped UK to avoid its balance of payment crisis. And now yeah, South exactly. Korea has, is getting the, the culture, the K-pop and uh, Parasite that won the Oscars and you mm-hmm. the, 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 the Squid Games. So there is a proper reason behind pumping culture into the world from South Korea's perspective then. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think I think India did a deal with the Soviet Union during the uh, 70s for Bollywood for something similar. 
My, oh. my, my partner's um, uh, Lithuanian, so her mother were members in the Soviet Union in the 70s. Bollywood on TV all the time. Right, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> apparently. And the, right. But no, no, none of the Soviet films ever came to India because they were all boring. All boring <laughs> and socialist, realist things. But the right. Bollywood films were fantastic colour and drama and all that kind of thing. Yeah. No, it only goes back to show that how the, the social element of it and money will yeah. continue to be interlinked in different ways, perhaps. Exactly. Exactly.